All right. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the landscape of learning technology while cutting through the fluff to answer the questions you need answered to make the right decisions when building your digital or learning ecosystem. So today I'm joined again by some of my friends over at Area 9 Lyceum. I've got Nick Howe and Joe Barrow, and we'll be digging in deeper into what it really takes to bring adaptive learning to life in your organization and how to prepare for some of the inevitable challenges you'll face. So for those of you joining us live, give us a thumbs up, share the post, tag in somebody who'd benefit from the conversation. And while we're getting started here, you know, for those of you just watching us, let us know where you're tuning in from in the comments. And I, you know, how about do you, Joe, where, where are you at today? I am just outside of Boston. Just outside of Boston. Okay, so you're in the thick of it over there on the East All right. Coast. All right. Downstairs, sheltered in place. I, I am sheltered in place in the basement, as you as you can see. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Nick? I forget. Where are you at? I'm in South Florida. I was going to say, is it Friday already? I don't know. I've kind of been locked in this. I room. know. You lose track of the days. Okay, South yeah. Florida. All right. You, are you going to the beaches this weekend? <laughs> yeah. The beaches are cordoned off. There are police patrolling. Not okay. All right. Well, I am I'm tuning in from the ever beautiful Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, and so to get things started, Waukesha, that's right. All right. So to get things started, you know, our question of the week, right? Let's I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what your answer is. Um, but what Olympic sport, if you could compete in any of them, summer or winter, totally fine. And it's relevant with what's going on with the Olympics and things. What sport would you compete in and why? And for those of you watching, go ahead and comment in and let us know too. Who wants to go first? I can go. Um, so when I grew up in England, um, one of the staples on TV on a Sunday afternoon was Ski Sunday. They always used to show the World Cup, either downhill or slalom or the rest of it. But they occasionally used to show the ski jumping. And I always wanted to do that. I've, I've seen the ski hill uh, just up, up in Montreal there and, and another one in Norway. And that idea of just going off the end of that ramp and just kind of just floating, free falling, just free falling. That that just seems amazing to me. So that would be it. OK, that would be it. You're brave. That's brave. All right. How about you, Joe? What would yours be? It wasn't Eddie the Eagle, the famous UK. Exactly. Uh, I would be Eddie the Eagle. <laughs> So my answer, given all my kids play hockey, would be hockey, but I am not nearly qualified uh, enough to skate. So I threw the javelin in high school. Uh, I loved it, had a ton of fun, and always thought it was kind of a uh, – it was just – it was a cool-looking thing to see on the Olympics as a kid, and uh, it, it would be a lot of fun to do. Okay. Very like Sparta, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that, makes that, me feel real good about myself. Yeah, you know? there you go. There you go. You can huck a sharp spear at, at anything. Your personality there, Joe. I mean, oh, yeah, thanks. Throwing, throwing spears at it's a killer, Throwing you know? spears, big sharp objects at things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and nobody said you had to be good at it because, Nick, I don't know that you would feel comfortable in current state just flying off a ramp, you know, and hoping that you land. But oh, I guess yeah. worth a shot. Mine, I think I, the ski jump one, now you made me think, I completely forgot about that one. I may be, I may be right there with you, but um, I think the luge would be a blast, like just yeah. rocketing down, you know, <laughs> holding on for dear life and hoping you make it to the end without flipping over the tube and going flying. So anyway, yeah, okay, the, well. You go head first or the one you go feet first? Ooh. Yeah, that's the skeleton, isn't it? When yeah, you know, the, skeleton, the skeleton is head first. 
What would be tough with that is so headfirst would be more exciting. I think it'd be more fun, but I'd want to see things flying yeah. around me. So like if maybe I could have like a 360 camera or something so I can see, <laughs> see the world around me, I would definitely go head first just for, you know, the, the adventure of it. Okay, cool. All right. Well, so let's let enough about the Olympics and all the fun, uh, fun sports that we'll, we'll be participating in. Uh, we're talking about adaptive learning. You know, I think we've had this conversation once before, but I think there was so much meat to go into here. We're back at it again with a little bit of a different uh, flair. But before we get into it, let's talk a little bit for people who may have missed our last conversation or folks who just are just kind of getting the hang of this stuff. Talk about adaptive learning, because I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It does. It does. And there are, it's unfortunately one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot, like yeah. AI and machine learning. It's like people often don't necessarily have a very good definition in their heads about what they mean. So we yeah. typically, I, I typically think about it in two main areas. Um, the one that's often in com common usage when they think about adaptive learning is adapting a curriculum so i am a project manager therefore there are certain courses that are relevant to me or maybe someone recommends something that is useful yeah. to me. that's what most people that's kind of yeah. the, the default go-to thing and um, we are not talking about that yeah. that certainly there's a need for that and you shouldn't be teaching people things they that are not relevant to them in the slightest possible way um but what we talk about with adaptive learning is really adaptive instruction. Can you change the method of delivery to meet the needs of the individual person? Um, and it's something that's been around for about 30 years or so. It used to be called intelligent tutoring systems. Okay. Um, but it's really only in the last few years that the kind of convergence of cognitive science and technologies come together to to create this new breed of tools that allow this adaptivity okay. to happen. Yeah, and, and that I think that's probably one of the biggest confusions I see when people think of adaptive learning is they are thinking more that recommendation engine, yeah. right? Where it's like, hey, here's content based on your job role or based on what your your people like you watched. You know, these are these are learning objects that might you might find relevant. And that's providing context, like you said, it's not nothing wrong with it, but that's not what we're talking about with this. Yeah. And, you know, there's some easy, <clears throat> excuse me, some easy analogies. You may, I, mean, I live down here in the South Florida. If I'm going to drive up to North Carolina, there's kind of two ways I can go, right? I can either go on I-95 or I can go up the turnpike. That's a pretty macro decision. And that's kind of like the adaptive curriculum thing. It's, it's There aren't that many choices, but you should probably put, at least put some thought into it. Yeah. But then the question is, once you hit the road and you hit the traffic starts getting busy or you decide to head cross country to avoid something and then you get lost, how the heck do you do all that intricate navigation to get you where you want to go? Yeah. Can you, and this is where the, the Google Maps analogy comes in. You can, you can use technology to solve that problem. And, and nowadays you can use technology to solve that same learning problem. How do we get you to proficiency in a way that's optimized for you personally, not just how everybody else did, just because someone else liked this, does that this path worked for them relevant to you? Right. So, 
Yeah, well, and I think, you know, I look at how the evolution of some of this stuff has had. I mean, I think branching, you know, was kind of some of the things that people first started doing to say, hey, let's let's kind of give some customized pathways for people. But again, if you've ever developed a branching course, it's still limiting. There's still only a set number of paths yeah. and it's a load of work to try and create, you know, the number of branches and how do you make sure people get there and, and all that stuff. So I see it almost taking that to a level, not even really comparable. I mean, you can say yeah. that's kind it of the would, research would suggest that's pretty much a fool's errand, right? I mean, there are reasons to do branching scenarios, yeah. but if you're, if you're specifically trying to manually branch to help people learn, you're you're just you might as well give up now because the level of variability and this might be a good time um just to throw up yeah a couple of slides and we'll just we'll get through this really quickly and just give people a little bit of a context um this may sound a little pejorative but people really are a problem if you come at this if you start looking at the cognitive science about how people learn people really are a problem and we and i think as an industry we don't take it seriously enough so if you just move to the first one chris um dunning kruger this has kind of got into the popular culture yep. over the last year or so um if you test people and see how well they do some people do really well some people do really badly um next slide if you then ask them how well did they do do the, there's a complete misconception um there's a fun thing you can do if we ever have parties again uh, <laughs> and we can actually get together. You can, if, if you randomly ask people, how good a driver do you think you are? Something like 80% of people say they're above average. And it's like, well, that doesn't work. Yeah. That doesn't, that, that doesn't add up to the statistics in terms of car accidents. Yeah. Um, and so we are somehow genetically wired particularly if we are not good at something. We are genetically wired to believe we are better than we are. Um, it is absolutely ubiquitous. It happens from, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a kid or whether you're 65 or 70, it's just the way our brains are wired. And so if we think we're already good at something, what are the chances we're actually going to pay attention when someone tries to teach it. It's like, well, I already know this. What the heck are you yeah. before? Even though it's actually wrong. If you go to I've that, always the thing with this that has always yeah. fascinated me about the Dunning Kruger effect is the inverse relationship yeah. right to what you think you're good at versus what you're really good at. And the yeah. things you're actually super good at, you're actually more inclined to kind of say, well, I I'm I mean I'm okay. I'm I'm pretty good, but I don't necessarily think I'm an expert. It's like those are probably the things you maybe even better at then you realize where the things you're like, I am the best of the best at this thing. Yeah. Those well, are the ones where, well, maybe it's a, not. a relatively simple explanation for that, which is the more you know about something, the more you realize how much you don't know about it. Yeah. Right. So is that context of once I get up to that top end of the scale, it's like, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know things, but I know there is a lot still to be known that I don't know. So almost yeah. an awareness that it's yeah. too big for you to even have. Interesting. Absolutely. So it, go to the next slide. So this is now real data, right? So why should people care? I mean, the theory is great, but why should people care about this stuff in practice? So the one on the left, um, each of those little horizontal bars, in fact, both the graphs, each of the horizontal bars are individual people that have gone through an adaptive learning experience. Okay. And we have this idea, the Dunning-Kruger thing, the, the technical term for that is unconscious incompetence. Yep. I don't realize that I don't know something or I can't do something. And so this is real measured unconscious incompetence amongst 
a group of learners. And you can see it's a little hard to read on the screen, but it goes from something like 5% down at the bottom to up over 60% up at the top. And we see this pretty consistently across you name the industry, you okay. name the audience. doesn't matter whether it's new hires or folks who have been in the business for 20 years. If you assess them on any particular subject, on average, people are going to be something in that 20%, 30% range. So in other words, if you ask them a question about something, there's pretty much a 20 to 30% chance that they're going to get it wrong but think they actually got it right. Okay. And that's very consistent. The one on the right um, is the other compounding factor, which is that most people, in addition to holding misconceptions, also do know some stuff. We okay. tend to, when we, when we put people in a training course, we, we do all like an empty box. Yeah, we do all that instructional design. We make sure we've got the absolute best content. We assume that everybody has to learn everything that's in the course. Yeah is so far from being true. It's just like the misconception thing. Most people know a fair percentage. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to teach them delegation skills or teach them about a product or how to be a better leader. Most people already know something. So A, if you, if you don't account for those things, you're going to miss the fact that they think they already know it. Therefore, they're probably just going to ignore what you're trying to teach them. And then yeah. you're going to compound it by wasting their time teaching them something they already know. Yeah. And the challenge has been, historically, we've been un unable to address those challenges at scale. Okay. Um, and then, I mean, just for grins, we'll just throw the last slide, which hopefully everybody knows, right? The forgetting curve. Yeah. Even if you do manage to teach them, they're probably going to forget stuff if they don't get to put it into practice. So yeah. you can switch those on that. So you put those th things together, and kind of people are a problem. They're really bad at knowing what they know. They already know a ton of stuff. And what you teach them, they forget. Okay. So the question is, which often we don't even consider when we roll a course out, is how do we meet those challenges? Okay. Well, and so one of the things on this that, you know, I'm always very aware and keen to this is that sometimes when we talk about these new emerging things or these things that really are improving the way learning can happen, sometimes there can be a bit of a, well, okay, we, we kind of pick sides or, or you get beat up a little bit. And I, as I've looked at this, this type of stuff, it's not that we didn't do this before because we didn't think it was there. It's just, it was not necessarily possible. To me, this is one of the most exciting parts about where technology is going is it's making some of these things possible and scalable at a level that historically we, we just may not have had the time and resources to go to this level of detail with things that you know maybe before would have been too time intensive too labor intensive things like that and so it's not so much a oh l and d you're you're so bad or the way you've done it just is ineffective it's like well we were doing the best we could but now the best we could is changing yeah and and joe i mean let's bring you in here i mean you spend your life talking to customers and prospects, people out there in the trenches uh, trying to you know, deliver learning on a day-to-day -day basis. My experience is certainly that some people are beginning to realize that, that it seems like people fall into one of two groups. There's the folks who are just carrying on as they are. Doing what they're doing. Doing what they're doing. You know, they're getting beaten up because they didn't get the course out fast enough or whatever. And they're just in the trenches digging away. But then I think 
Joe, you'd agree with this. There are some folks who are beginning to go, maybe there is a different way of looking at Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think there's more and more of those people out there now, or I'd say over the last four years since I've been here, um, that have gotten past that, you know, hey, there's got to be a better mousetrap, and how do we get there, to really putting strategic thought around, okay, I know this is possible. Um, the algorithms in this type of a platform can update frequently enough to, to make this possible. Now, how do we think strategically about where we would start? Who's going to be the best group? Um, what type of a use case gives us the most chance for success? So that's a really interesting conversation to have um, versus just showing up and trying to sell something. Yeah, uh, it, It's an opportunity to solve real problems. And you know, when you start to look at the data that comes out of the platform and the time that it can save, um, it, it can be very, very impactful. Yeah. Well, and I, that going back to your slides before, and this is where I, I'd like to kind of dig into this a little bit more, is the slides you talked about, maybe for some in L&D, that might be new, that might be new information, right? And, and if it is, that's great, because that's kind of the awareness state where you go, whoa, okay, clearly there's, there's some scientific data behind this stuff. Um, and it's not just a trend or a new fad, things like that. But a lot of that makes at least to me, perfect sense, right? You look at it and you go, yeah, people don't remember, people overestimate their knowledge. We tend to treat people like, well, you don't know anything, so we're gonna cramp. So you hear that stuff and you go, okay, it makes logical sense. What do you see in the market as some of the resistors? Because to me, it just looks logical, like, well, duh. Yeah. Why, why don't you move to this? And I know that's not always the case. It's not just people jump on and go, makes perfect sense, let's just change everything we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the problems is it, it makes sense once you see it. You know, it, it's one of those blindingly obvious things that once you see it, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. It's like, well, you know, so why haven't you been doing anything about it for the last 20 years? Um, so th there is that degree of awareness. It isn't obvious. And some of those things that we talked about are very counterintuitive. So it, it isn't the case that this stuff is completely obvious. Otherwise, we would have tried much harder to solve it in the past. Okay. Um, I, I think there is... I have a friend who's a, a an education professor, and he's somewhat critical. And I think I mentioned this on the last podcast we did. He he says L and D is one of the most unprofessional of professions. Oh. Um, I think we do, as a group, not necessarily always think through as deeply as we should some of these things. I think the, the there are a number of barriers. I mean, we, you know, I went through this seven years ago when I deployed this in my own L and D team, and the immediate reaction from some of the folks was. Um, well, do you still need me, right? This, if you're going to use technology to solve these problems, do we still need instructional designers? Do we still need graphic designers? Um, now, the answer to that is absolutely yes, but often the first reaction is that classic, you know, people are resistant to change. It naturally... It challenges their identity, right? All of a sudden yeah. it's like, whoa, I've been doing this for a long time. This is different. Do I still have a place? And then fear kicks in. And I mean, there's all the emotional components that go along with that. Yeah. Uh, and the, the good thing is, if you're doing this properly, the answer is absolutely. We are one of the things that our, our CEO is, is very strong about is that this is about augmenting human capability, not about replacing it. Okay. So um, we see a lot of, 
of application of this technology in blended environments. So it, it isn't even that you know instructors are going to go away. We've talked about the move to online for the last twenty years. Um, the again, if you go back to the the underlying research, you know you can do really good instruction, if, particularly if you embed formative assessments into the classroom and actually as an instructor adjust to meet to figure out whether people are actually learning the thing you're doing and you can do certainly with adaptive learning really good online instruction but you can get even better instruction if you do the combination of the two okay and a lot of the conversations that we've been having and so timely right now you know with all the stuff that's going on a lot of questions about i'm doing everything in the classroom I've got to move it online. And if you are, if you think through that problem properly, then it isn't simply about delivering the content. Yeah. Because right? otherwise you're doing your instructors a disservice. You're just saying that the role of an instructor is simply to push content at people. Yep. Well, clearly not. They play a key role in the classroom. So why do we think that we can now just take the content that we've been delivering in the classroom Wrap it from one box to the other. The SCORM wrapper, take the instructor away and send it out and think that we've solved the problem. And the natural reaction is, well, we need to make it more engaging. And, I mean, yes, don't turn your learners off. <laughs> but I think, again, I'm, I'm apologies if I sound critical of our industry. No. But I think we have somehow got ourselves into a place where often – we have become content developers and content deliverers. Yeah. And we've lost sight of the fact that that isn't what we do. What we do is build capability. And content is a means to an end. And therefore, you need to look at how is that content being consumed and are we helping people to consume it? Not simply, you know, well, we've got an e-learning authoring tool, we've got an LMS, we can just take all those... 20 hours of instructor-led training, drop it in a wrapper and push it out there and expect to get the same result. I mean, you know, it's like, think this through a bit more carefully. Well, and it goes back to, you know, the conversation we were having a little bit before we went live, where right now is a, it's a unique opportunity for us to kind of hit pause and reset in some regards, because there is, yes, there is this demand now to move things, to be available online. The digital movement is got a major Kickstarter right now, which comes with risk, right? We can, we yep. can jump to reaction mode. And like you said, we have all this classroom training. Can we quick chuck it into an e-learning, wrap it up in a SCORM package and pass it out and, and hope that it's the same thing? And I think the risk of doing that is actually more detrimental to our industry than anything else, because on the other side, people will go, oh, well, see, that's, that's what digital learning really means. And it's like, well, no, that's a terrible example of how yeah. to do it well. Yeah, I think Nick brings up a good point. I think one of the interesting aha moments for us to see on our side of the fence, once people start to deploy and roll out is maybe beforehand thinking, well, my role as a designer is going to be minimized or my role as a facilitator will be lessened. But like, you know, where we're using the AI and the platform in large part around to do the heavy lifting around content development makes that designer's job much more critical to be writing proper objectives and really concentrating on writing good questions. And then the facilitator in that blended environment studying the data to say, well, gosh, 75% of the people that 
went through these objectives, I can see that they know it and they're confident and they're correct. I really need to focus on where they're struggling if they're going to learn anything and facilitate a good interactive discussion using the data. And once that connection's made, it's really interesting to see how things start to scale. You know, that's one of the things that I don't think always gets the you know spotlight on it that to me really should with any of these things is the data behind it, right? Making data-driven decisions. And to your point earlier, Nick, you know, being more professional in this space requires us to do it based on data and you know, what do we really know about this stuff? And this is an opportunity. And I think, like I said, I think that's one of the things people go, oh, it's a much better learner experience. It's more efficient. It's all good things. But that opportunity to see we're really, as you said, Nick, we're capability developers. We should care. Where is it breaking down? Where is it not moving? Where do we really need to lean in? Because ultimately, we're accountable for bringing people to where they need to go. And you can't do that when you're flying blind and just throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yeah. And I think there are maybe three or four major buckets of of data or, or ways to think about data you know we, we again we in the LD industry we've been talking about data forever how long how old when did tin can first come out i mean a year while ago right um and we've still barely scratched the surface with what might be potential with xapi um but we see data being used in a number of different ways i mean what firstly within the adaptive algorithm itself so again just for folks who maybe missed the last podcast the way that not just how our system works, but the way that pretty much all of these adaptive platforms work is by a heavy use of questions and problems, but not as a pretest or as a post-test, but as part of the learning experience. So yes, I'm seeing content, but I'm also seeing, I'm challenged to respond to a lot of things. And the adaptive engine uses that. So very much like Google Maps, one of the ways that data is used is completely behind the scenes. We're collecting data, we're using data where the algorithms are adapting and magic happens. It goes into the black box and something comes out on the other side. You don't care how Google works as long as it gets you where you want to go. Right. That's one way about it. Um, The second one is in a blended environment. So we've just worked with a client, a major defense contractor who's been doing some instructing, instructor-led training out in Singapore. And they actually used, and this is quite an, a corner case, a strange use case, they used the adaptive platform in the classroom. Really? They specifically set aside, instead of the instructor standing at the front of the room, so they were doing, it was a mixed, classic mixture of some theory and some practical. Okay. So they took what would have been normally the instructor standing up and telling. Delivering content. Delivering content. They put those into adaptive modules and actually had the students use their computers in the class to go through those modules. And then, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but then the instructors who were then about to then start doing a role play or some kind of practical could look at the data and say, who, or who did really well with that? Who struggled as they went through that? And so they were able to change their teaching to better target the needs of the people because they were getting feedback about the thing as opposed to spending an hour you know, delivering content to the class and then saying, right, now let's move on to the next thing. And yeah. not having a clue that the guy in the back left corner has no idea. It's one ear and out the other. 
Okay. Not a clue. So, so they've used it that way. One of the problems they ran into, and this is why you have to be deliberate about some of these decisions, is some of the people did really, really well. Okay. They got through the content really, really quickly, and now they're sat in a class going, okay, so now what do I do for 30 minutes while everybody else catches up? But that's kind of a nice problem to have because you know who your good people are and maybe right. you can get them to help out. So that's bucket number two is in a blended environment. Bucket number three, which again isn't obvious until you really start to think about this, is content intelligence. So I'm now gathering data from my learners to help them learn better, but I find out what people are struggling with. And I can now see which parts. So I've spent a fortune building courseware. Historically, it's been fire and forget. Yeah. And I've got no idea how it's performing. Now I can see at a very granular level how well it's performing and whether people are struggling with it. And now I can surgically go in as a developer and say, right. this isn't working. I need to improve this teaching. Right, where it's it, the, the analogy we give is it's like a human tutor and a human tutor you can see whether the learner's learning something or not and you can figure out whether the way that you're trying to teach it is working or not right. now we can let, allow a content developer to instrument their work that gives them feedback from 10,000 people at once yeah and see what whether what they are doing is making a difference and maybe where they need to tune and improve some things. It's kind of the quality improvement nirvana because you're getting yeah. all of this feedback that lets you focus in. Well, and and that's one of the things, you know, we've been talking about this from the beginning, that it's it's messaging that I, I look to senior L&D leaders to say, you one, you need to better understand this stuff so that you can help your teams understand this because there is this fear factor, right? What does this mean? Things like that. And that is our responsibility as senior L&D leaders to say, hey, is it going to be a different world? Yes, but the skills you bring to the table aren't, aren't irrelevant anymore they're going to be applied in a different way, if anything, in a better way. I think of you know, yeah. the best facilitators that I know, like you're not a great facilitator because you talk to PowerPoint slides really well. You're a great facilitator because you know how to read the room and, and work with people and know where to lean in. And so spend more of your time doing that, which you actually, that's really what you enjoy. You don't yeah. Of sitting there talking to, you know, oh, well, this slide is this. That's And so I think it's just about helping paint that story and help people get through it. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that came through from from Olga, and I think it's a, it's a good question, and I'm curious from a case study standpoint how, you, how you've seen clients tackle this. Because two of the things that came, Paige and Olga both asked about the behavior change. And I think this is one of those things that you really do from a design and architecture standpoint have to think about because there is this knowledge component, right? yep. this element of people need to know things to be able to behave in a certain way. But you can't stop there because just because people know something doesn't mean they'll do it, you know, and, and we see countless examples of that. So how do clients balance that when you work with them? So it's not a, hey, great, we've proven everybody knows this thing now. But do we know that they're actually acting differently? Yeah. Joe, do you want to talk about maybe the journey that Shinola went on? Yeah. So they've done some interesting things from an onboarding perspective. 
So for those that don't, Shinol is a retailer here in okay. the US, luxury goods. Yeah. Yep. So well known for watches, leather goods, bikes, and now they've gone to built a hotel. It's a pretty amazing company story based in Detroit. Um, so they started with a pretty standard use case from okay. onboarding, but the the types of things they were training people on expanded past your normal onboarding type topics. They got into a lot of like culturally based questions. Um, what What is appropriate to wear on a floor in terms of colors of clothing and how you properly speak to to customers and why you use those terms. Um, they then started to grow to use a lot of video to promote store to store cohesiveness among employees. So they'd have Nick Howe present a watch from one store and Joe Barrow present a bag from another store. And it, it almost started to grow like a little culture internally within the business because of the things they were using. So there was some really interesting change that they saw. Um, that not only was it bringing the information that people needed, but it also created a cohesiveness among a staff that was, okay. you know, and at the time, I think 25 or 30 different stores in different parts of the country. So a really interesting use case. Yeah, because if you look at human factors, you know, in kind of inherent in the question that's asking is, what is it that either promotes or inhibits transfer into the workplace? Ultimately, we're looking for behavior change. And we talked about capability building. What we really mean by that is people doing things differently. Right. You um, used to do it like this. Now you're doing it like that. Like that. And, you know, there are several barriers to that. I mean, uh, and one of them is just that basic knowledge component. If you don't know what you should be doing, the chances of you doing it are pretty close to zero. Yep. So um, there's a, a guy called Eli Goldratt um, who's written some some fantastic research. But one of the things is about this idea of, of sufficiencies, right? If you're looking for behavior change, it is necessary that people know what they're supposed to be doing. Now that on its own is not sufficient, but if you exactly. don't have it, you're never going to get there. Correct. So, so let's make sure we get that knowledge building solid. But then the second component is this idea of confidence. One of the big aspects that we bring into adaptive learning is about self-awareness and being calm. And this is the Dunning-Kruger thing. I yeah. now know what I know, I know. I'm what I know. that I could apply this if I need to. So now you're removing another barrier. We've, we've seen some evidence that people are sometimes reticent to do something to change their behavior because they're not quite sure about it. So if you can re you reinforce that confidence, then you, there's a much better chance they're going to apply it. And then you can get into and this is where blended can really help. Then you can get into some role modeling and some practicing and various other things. Yeah. Um, we haven't done a huge amount of research and I haven't seen a lot of research in terms of transfer onto the job. Uh, but certainly we have plenty of evidence where organizations have switched from one. I mean, it's, it's easy to come up with use cases where you didn't train people and now you do train. Right. People. Right. And you can measure it. Sure, you know, okay, great. Right. Um, but we've got plenty of use cases now where people were delivering training one way, and Shinola is a good example of this. And they've changed it. And they've changed to delivering it a different way, and they have seen concrete results from that. Okay. Um, certain, there are some things I can't say because they haven't gone public with it, but they, Shinola themselves, are very confident that 
they are seeing direct impact of this different way of doing it from yeah. a learner perspective. And it's also had a knock-on impact. So they used to have product specialists and managed store managers delivering the training. They've been able to offload a lot of that work into the online environment and see benefits from that, but then also free up time of those leaders and those product specialists, again, to be much more surgical in their interventions. Well, and there's two things that, you know, I look at, I look at when you see this. And, and I think a lot of times we're looking in L&D for, you know, what is that thing that's going to make it work? And the reality is, I, mean, I talk to technology providers all the time. I've been in this my entire career. There's not a thing that's going to just Absolutely. make it happen. Changing human behavior is hard. Yeah. Right? People don't inherently change just naturally. And it's, it's a lot of work to do it. And so I think that that is a critical component of, Hey, it, it's not easy. You're not going to, you're not going to buy anything that's going to magically flip the switch. And I think the point you brought up, you know, is a big part of the mantra that I, that I drive is right. It's about knowing, feeling, and doing there's, there's this yeah. whole three component. It's like, yes, there's a knowledge component. There is that emotional your confidence, you know, where, what's your emotional state, things like that, that you have to take into account. And then there's the do. And the thing I think that's fascinating and exciting about technologies like adaptive is it frees us up to spend more time on those behavior components, because we're not spending as much time trying to get the knowledge piece perfect. At least that's, that's what gets me up and excited. Yeah. About the, other, the other way to think about it is that, um, because now we have evidence that that knowledge component was successful, we're not fighting against it when we do that behavior thing. Right. You've got a much more solid foundation. And, and I don't want to leave people with the impression that you can only do knowledge building through adaptive. We've got plenty of examples right. of blue collar workers with very practical techniques. So it is very applicable across the spectrum of knowledge and skill, but the low hanging fruit is, you know, is the knowledge stuff that's super easy to deal with. Yeah. So Joe, I'm curious on this one, because when, when you look at some of these, one of the biggest things that I think affects some of the ways we do it and the challenges we face when we try and do things differently is we've got companies filled with people who associate learning with, right, what they remember back in, in school, right? I went to school and my teacher told me and everybody the same thing. And I took a test and then I moved on. And that is what they associate it with. And when I've, I've been in conversations where I've presented these new ways and the response has literally been, well, that just doesn't look like training. And you're like, well, exactly. Like that's what we're trying to get at. So how do you see clients navigating that because that is something that senior L&D leaders, you know, HR leaders, there's there's some real barriers that you have to overcome in getting people to see what's different and how do you do that well? Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm super pleased to see um a transformation happen in the last 4 years from to your point of yeah, we just don't do it that way or that's not traditionally we just don't to um, organizations saying uh, much more frequently, we are putting the onus on the learner to make sure they're staying current or that that's a big part of their culture. Not that there's not required training, but that then drives people towards thinking about something like adaptive learning. Um, 
And, and it just makes those initial conversations much, much easier because the, you know, organizations that have been forward thinking are just more receptive to the conversation and, and really digging into the details as to how they would make something like that happen. Okay. So you're seeing a trend over the past few years that more and more organizations are starting to think differently about this and some of the legacy kind of this is how it is, is, is starting to break. Yeah, I, I think it's happening in two ways. One is uh, organizations starting to think that way. And in the case of the Shinolas of the world and many of the others that we work with saying, okay, now we're doing it. What's the limit? W- what are the unique things we can really do? You know, what what are the hard problems that we really need to solve, right? Because you can come in here and put, you know, IT security, code of conduct, sexual harassment, and all those courses that people tend to complain about and put them in the platform and, and you'll do great. But when you really have to solve an intricate um, safety issue or a compliance or something regulatory or sales in nature, that's where you really see the platform shine. Um, and organizations that think in that um, uh, respect are doing some really amazing things. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we, one example I think it's interesting to talk about. So we work with a major U.S. airline, and like all the airlines, they'd gone through a series of mergers. And some of these things you don't necessarily think about until you start really digging into it. Um, they had a basic problem just with using common language. Um, they were finally moving towards a single system for a part of, of the airline. Um, and a, a fundamental barrier to that implementation being successful was just getting people to the same place in terms of what they called things operationally. In operationally, the yeah. Terminology. The barrier to communication across the business. People were using different terminology. The definitions of those things differed slightly across the business. I mean, cl- fundamentally classic problem, a performance problem in the business yeah. was truly was a learning problem. And they tackled that, and they said directly as a result of just simply getting people to use that same common language and understanding how to apply it, they had the first month possibly they'd ever had where they hadn't had to cancel a flight really? because of a scheduling problem amongst that organization. Right? I mean, how much is that worth? If, if you're an L, I mean, that's – the best L&D story. The CLO says, as a result of us training these 300 people, we avoid having to cancel flights. Yep. It's like, wow, you know, that's just paid for the entire L&D budget for the year. Yeah. Well, yeah. All the other stuff they're going to do. Well, and I think, you know, those are the types of stories that, you know, really give credibility to this. I mean, I remember in one organization I was with, we were leading an initiative and you know, we what we did contributed to a first pass approval, you know, versus number of rounds with FDA. I mean, you, you can't really quantify the financial value of that allows us to be first to market. Like that, that is dollars and cents, you know, that, that can't be quant. I mean, I guess I could, if you really went to it, but yeah, those are, those are the types of things that can come out of it. Yeah. Now, there's one. I don't know if you've got more questions there, Chris, or where you want to go. There's one thing we we called this adapting to adaptive learning. This yeah this podcast. Um, I think there's a practical discussion. I think we can have, or or some answers we can give around what does it take to make this change? Right? Because yeah. we've talked about some of the theory behind it and some of the benefits yeah. you can get from it. Um, because one of the 
there is this awareness thing. It, yes. For many of our clients, oh, yeah, this sounds great, but I'm not ready for it. Yep. Is one of the common things we get. Um, or it's too advanced for what we do. Um, interestingly, there is, I think there's a maturity that, that organizations can go through. And, and Joe can speak to some of those. Certainly the airline we were just talking about. You know, they started in one bit of the business and they've gradually opened up to others. But I think one of the fascinating things is that, and this plays to the discussion earlier about it, what does this mean for my job? Yep. The skills that you need to apply these new types of technologies are pretty much exactly the same skills that you already have in the organization. Right? There's no net new thing you need to do to take advantage of this. You still do requirements gathering in the business. You still do instructional design to figure out how should we teach this thing. You still develop content. You still put it into an e-learning system. So from that perspective, it is- It feels very familiar. It's utterly non and you still author linearly, right? So you don't even have to wrap your head around weird ways of doing things. You still, as a developer, I still develop my content linearly, pretty much. So even though the learning experience even no though the longer is linear, the development process yeah. is linear. And that and that's one of the big things. You you fundamentally break the link between the way that you author and the way it is consumed. Okay. The traditional approaches, it doesn't matter whether it's the classroom or online, you author linearly and the learner goes through it linearly okay. with these adaptive technologies, you author linearly, but the learning experience can go all over the place depending on what the learner needs. So the good thing is it's very non-disruptive to the authoring process. You don't really have to change your workflows in any way. The, there are two fundamental differences. One is um, that the content, in order for the adaptive engine to work, the content has to be somewhat granular. Now, if you're already thinking about micro-learning and you're already comfortable with the idea of chunking things up, take hold that one. Okay. And then the other one, which can be a challenge, possibly the biggest challenge we see, is it uses this formative assessment way of teaching. It uses questions and problems. And unfortunately, I mean, there's a reason why we have instructional designers, right? You should not let SMEs randomly loose building courses because they're not good yeah. at that. Right? There is a professional element to what we do. And in the same way, it's really easy to write bad questions. So you do have to have a degree of skill. You certainly don't need to go all the way to psychometrics and, and deep certification and legal validity. And but knowing that. how to write good questions. That you just, you've got to know, right? don't use true-false because there's a 50% chance they can guess it. Okay. Make sure your distractors are the same length as the true answers. Yeah, <laughs> we've all seen those course we've questions, all, right? Where it's like, oh, right. let's see, these three are like yeah. blatantly, obviously wrong. This yeah. one has don't, weird don't details. All of the above or none of the above, right? Yeah. There, there are some basic things, but if you can master those, and that ain't rocket science, then you're pretty much there. Okay. Now, once you've got through that and you've started to use it, then you can move up the majority uh, the maturity curve you can start looking at the data and seeing how do, what does this mean for our curriculum you can look at how could we incorporate this into a blended environment and how would we maybe slice our curriculum differently now we have this new capability okay. how might we look at the data for our learners what does it tell us about 
the things that are going on in the business and maybe where we ought to intervene. Yeah. And you can look at maybe moving more to an agile development approach because now the system knows exactly who's learned what. So I can now add updates without having to think about, oh, geez, half my audience hasn't done it, half of them hasn't done it. How do I version control that? You know, we could spend hours just on that topic, but you can begin to knock off a series of challenges that have kind of plagued and, and caused problems for L&D going back decades yeah. just because of these new sets of capabilities that come along with, with these new types of technologies. Well, you know, and, and Paige, she said she's going to quote you for your weird, we should not let SMEs randomly create courses. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing about it is I look at some of these things as an opportunity for us to have more credibility. Yeah. Right? You know, because there is in some organizations this perception of like, let's just get an easy authoring tool and give every SME in the company, you know, access to things and then they can just build their own content. And that's because there hasn't always been some real credibility behind well, what is it that you do with this stuff. So, you know, I think that is something that well, it's almost classic Dunning-Kruger, right? Because right. everybody went to school. Everybody's a teacher. Is everybody thinks they understand how teaching and learning works, and most people don't. No, no. Right? That is the cross we have to bear as L and D people. And I, and I think I, I love what you just said. I think this gives us. We've all, you know, we've talked about the seat at the table for years and all those types of things, and that's really difficult to do if you don't have the same level of evidence that the other parts of the business can right. bring. You know, the, the, the head of logistics knows exactly where every yep. package is that goes off the dock and all the rest of it. Yep. Marketing has now got all these tools that tell you a click through and all those types of things. We've still been kind of operating at a disadvantage yeah. to many of the other parts of the organization where right. now we can step up. And, and when when Bill from sales can host a workshop and his smile sheets look just as good as the ones you've been developing, it's really hard to say, hey, what we do is different and unique and actually adds value when, right, that perception's not there. I mean, I look at, you know, what you said in terms of some of the steps, the, the things that we have to step through. I, I think, one, you just decrypted a lot of that, which is it's not as big of a lift as maybe people think in their head from a development standpoint. I mean, like you said, getting better at questions, yes, there's opportunity there, but that's not asking somebody to completely retune their entire career. For me, I see a lot of this weight falling on senior L&D leaders. I, I see there being a lot of responsibility on us to, one, help tell the stories to our teams about this, you know, to quell some of the fear of what does this mean for us? We need to be able to be transparent and say, hey, this, this is how it's going to work. And I think there's also lots of opportunity for us to assess what is our leadership what is their knowledge base? Where are they at? Because we need to bring them along for the ride. If you are in an organization that says, well, this is how we do it, you know, we're responsible for helping bring that up so that they can move forward. So I, I think you know, it's, it's helpful to hear some of those things. Are there any other hiccups where you've, you've gone in and all of a sudden you've gone, oops, we, you know, here was a landmine we weren't expecting. Yeah, and I was just going to ask. Joe, because I say he, he 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 has the good and the bad, right? As as the uh, as the person who's facing the customer on a day to day basis, he he gets the kudos when it goes well, but he also pick <laughs> up the pieces. It when... always goes well. It always goes well. Yeah, we'll quote there's, you on that one. There's, there's um, you know, in all seriousness, there's a lot of 
there's definitely an, an analysis to be done on the front end about courses, right? So oftentimes what we'll see is an organization will say, well, I want to get this course into the platform. This is what we want to start with. And it's about a 30 minute course. Okay. You know? And when we dig into it from an adaptive learning perspective, sometimes we come back and say, okay, you're teaching this in 30 minutes. But when we look at this content, we actually see it as an hour long course. Okay. Which probably explains why people are struggling with it. So let's really break it down and make sure we're building something that's in line with your expectations or the needs of the people that are going to consume the content. Okay. Right? So that does happen sometimes, but it, it just, you know, it really it forces organizations to go through that analysis of, you know, kind of how much, how deep, how long about that 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 analysis of what a course is. Okay. Right. How about with the content? Because, you know, I think some of the things you said, Nick, which are right, it's it's not a big shift. If you're doing L&D well, I think is one of the big things, right? If you're doing L&D well, it's a pretty simple shift. If you're not doing L&D well, that's some pre-work I think you need to do, right? We, we love pre-work. Like that's pre-work you need to do. If you're not doing quality needs analysis, if you're not doing quality instructional design, you you've got some work to do because putting really bad content on things that aren't actual problems in an adaptive learning platform. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it helps if you Pareto the problem. I, I saw a presentation from a major bank, like a major bank who um, figured out that they were delivering more than a million hours of training that wasn't even relevant to the people they were giving it to. Okay. Right. Just they would teach, they had retail bankers and they were teaching them commercial banking stuff. It's like, no, you're so they, they eliminated a million hours of, of wasted time simply by looking at, are we teaching the right people, the right subjects? So if you can save a million hours, you should probably start there <laughs> before you start dabbling with right. this. Don't put those million hours into an adaptive platform yeah. if you didn't need them there in the first place. So, so yes, there, there is no excuse for, um, you know, you, you, you've got to avoid the garbage in, garbage out problem. Yeah. It, you, it doesn't matter how good the teaching platform is. It doesn't matter how good an instructor you are. If you're, if the content itself is terrible, then or it's not relevant to the learners, then you're just wasting people's time. So yeah. we do, and we have. So, and here's a classic example: we spoke to a major clothing retailer, uh, national. They've got stores in, in every city in the U.S. Pretty much 100 percent of their, of all their training is face to face. Still today, they yeah. haven't even stepped on. Well, not today. It's not. Well, today, <laughs> not right? Yeah, so that everybody's at home now, twiddling their thumbs, right? So they're probably in a world of hurt. And we, and, you know, to contrast that, um, I was chatting with um, one of our clients yesterday, who is uh, a restaurant chain. They've had to put all their employees at home. They're taking that as an opportunity because they'd already started to make this shift to online. They're taking it as an advantage, an opportunity to do a lot of retraining and to upskill a lot of the people who would otherwise be sat at home doing nothing. So now they can keep them employed, keep them paid, but use it as a way of upskilling them. If all you've got in your tools box is instructor-led training and now you can't deliver it, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah. So I think anybody, 
who is leading an L&D organization, I mean, yes, this we're in an extreme situation right now, but you need to be keeping an eye on what are the capabilities that I can bring to bear to the organization. Yeah. And what are those core elements that I need to have as part of my L&D strategy? And it isn't necessarily about just chasing the latest buzzwords and chasing the new technology. Not everybody needs VR, right? I mean, just be be cognizant about what problem you are trying to solve. Yeah. And then look at, you know, how do we go about solving those types of problems? Yeah. Well, and, you know, Craig had asked a question, and I think one of the things that's really coming to light with this, you know, his question was about, you know, in a mature organization, how do you get them to be willing to commit time and effort to the content analysis and some of these other components? And I think that's, again, goes back to that. That's really an L&D skill. You know, that's a that's a muscle for learning professionals to continue to grow to say, hey, we have to move away from this reactionary you know, hey, somebody said we need this. And so, you know, we're going to do it. Somebody said we need an adaptive course on how do you work from home, you know, type stuff. Well, okay, do we, you know, is that something we really need to pursue? You know, Joe, any tips that you've seen with customers that maybe have been in that situation, maybe don't have the strength of a a really strong L&D organization to make that jump? Yeah. So I I think it's, it's one, his question is, is a good example or a good, talking point of why we'll, you know, this isn't like rolling out an LMS where you're going to light up 500 courses at once. Typically, we're starting with one and two. That content analysis doesn't take nearly as long as you think. Um, And then once you have a course built, the data will tend to be uh, very enlightening. So, you know, if you're starting with a course that's been around for five years and it's been added to and added to and added to, you know, you'll see that sort of that bloat happen when you're building it. But once you see the end results around time, um, people's misconceptions or lack thereof, uh, certain areas in the course where people really struggled, where you thought everybody knew it, then all of a sudden that content analysis becomes a priority because you can see exactly where you're having success or where you thought you were and you weren't which is going to expose some pretty mission critical business problems, or in Nick's case of the bank, where you're spending a ton of time doing training on where in, in an area that can be needed. So that's, that's one of the questions I have. And I'm curious, because at first, you know, I was thinking about this, and I'm curious if you have a best practice for this, because as I was looking at it, there's no shortage of bloat in most stuff that exists now, right? I mean, content is overbloated. It's, you know, every SME has an input and and we maybe don't always do our due diligence to cut out, or sometimes we're personally attached to it. I've I've worked with people on teams who have said, well, this is like my program I put together. How dare anybody ever suggest, you know, this stuff. Do you necessarily have to clean all that out to start or can adaptive learning actually help expose Absolutely. Fine, yeah. put it all in, but when everybody tests through 80% of it because it was completely irrelevant, it, the data tells the story, you don't have to. Yeah, and, and that would be my probably first piece of advice. I mean, the, the net, 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 net of all of this is that if you can help someone learn, they're going to get much better outcomes than if you just put content in front of someone and hope that they're going to learn. So it, does, it almost doesn't matter how bad or how bloated or, what, or how irrelevant what you've got is. At least we can help people 
master what it is you're trying to get them to do. Once you've done that part, hopefully you're not teaching things that are ir irrelevant. But, um, uh, once you, <laughs> but it goes on. I, no, it doesn't happen. <laughs> once you've done that, as Joe said, then the data, now you've got evidence. Yes. That lets you start, instead of just throwing random darts at a board or making assumptions, there are a huge number of assumptions yep. that we have to make when we're building curricula. We do. We've got to assume how much people maybe already know, is this going to be relevant to them? Well, now we've actually got data that can begin to inform those decisions. And you can, you can put the first step on that maturity ladder and gradually begin to look at, all right, how do we get better at this stuff? Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's an important message, you know, if, if people are watching, cause I can see that being personally, right. A resistor to moving to it. Cause you think you have to get everything in order first. Like we need to clean everything up and make sure it's just the right course to pick. And it's like, well, no, actually bring your, bring your stuff that maybe isn't all that great. Let's, let's put it in and let's, let's find out, like, let's find out how relevant it is. How much does your audience really know? It's a, it's a good experiment to run, to be able to start um, moving you through that maturity. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, this is, I, I knew we would run out of time again. So I'm sure, I'm sure we'll have to have another one of these at some point, but um, I, I appreciate you being here. Uh, thanks Joe and Nick for, for joining me again, despite all the chaos going on, it works. We're able to get out and share knowledge amidst the, the chaos. So thanks for uh, this. Have an amazing rest of your Friday, an amazing weekend. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks. Stay Thanks, healthy. Everybody.